from APM. This is Educate, a podcast from APM Reports on ideas and research on how we teach and learn. I'm Stephen Smith. So here's the cliche picture of suburbia USA. White picket fences, manicured lawns in front of perfectly maintained homes. And it's a picture that usually does not involve diversity. Yet, American suburbs are increasingly racially diverse. Today, more than one-third of all suburban residents are people of color. Many schools in the suburbs, though, remain somewhat segregated. Others, which educated mostly middle- and upper-class white kids for decades, are now serving students from diverse racial and socioeconomic backgrounds. Yet even in a diverse and well-resourced suburban school district, racial achievement gaps remain. Our guest today spent several years embedded in a suburban school district to try to find out why. Dr. LaRue Lewis-McCoy is a professor of sociology at the City University of New York and author of the book Inequality in the Promised Land, Race, Resources, and Suburban Schooling. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. So why'd you choose uh, Suburban Town for your research? Uh, Where was it and, and what can you tell us about it? Well, I ended up choosing a suburban town because when I started to read about education and read about educational inequality, I often was given a picture of the city of cramped spaces, of decaying schools and missed opportunities. And what often wasn't discussed were suburban schools, which were assumed to be ideal, were assumed to be well-appointed and predominantly white. And when I looked at my own experience growing up in Connecticut, a state that is often thought of as predominantly white, as an African-American male, things were often not as rosy as they were presented. So when I was setting out to do my research, I thought the suburbs were an important place to look at. Rolling Acres is an idyllic suburb. It's the type of place that people move to. They desire it. It's a place where nearly 100,000 people live. It has a very well-established school system where each year national merit scholars are produced, where the band showcases itself on national stages. And for the most part, it has a very strong reputation around public education. I really noticed quickly that there was something that was being missed. When I attended a high school graduation and different names started to be belted from the dais and people said they were going to Bates and they were going to Harvard and they were going to the University of Wisconsin, When it came to the black classmates, oftentimes their schools were much less selective or military service was a predominant option. And so there was a juxtaposition in which there were loud, roaring applause for often white and affluent students who were going to the best schools in the nation. And then for their lower income and black counterparts, fewer of them were having equal opportunity. So I wanted to go much younger, and I decided to look at elementary school to see, well, how does inequality start and what can we do about it? In agreement with the universities that I worked with in collecting this data, as well as the school system, they asked me to anonymize the people who are in the study as well as the suburb itself. Was Rolling Acres already racially and economically diverse, or was it a is it a suburb like many, where the, the flood of people with money or the or the trickle, if anything, of people with money back into the city has meant that some city residents have then been pushed out into the suburbs or the exurbs? Comparatively, Rolling Acres has been diverse. Now, when you think about the suburbs that you call enclave suburbs, often the suburbs that were built in the outer ring, the suburbs that have very high quality housing stock, they tend to have low numbers of students of color. So uh, you're looking at African-American populations of 5%, Latino populations of 3%. But Rolling Acres itself was unique because its school-age population for African-Americans was roughly between 12 and 14%, which made it very close to the national average of how many African-American students were there. 
it's kind of the ideal. It's the view book town. It's one of these socially engineered spaces that people move because they want to make sure their children are raised around difference. Yet you write that the education there remains essentially separate and unequal between the races. Why is that? Well, I think that happens for a number of reasons. The first being that while Rolling Acres is often painted with the best brush possible, with liberal strokes of folks who care about education and care about each other, what isn't talked about is the history of race. Within the town, Main Street divided what historically was the black side of town and the white side of town. And when you talk to residents and you ask them about racial residential segregation, their first thought is, we don't have this here. But as I started to dig into the history of Rolling Acres, I saw as far back as the 1970s, the district itself had been challenged for undereducating African-American students. So in the same classroom, the experience is unequal. Is part of the problem there that the teachers themselves are coming from a white middle class background and don't understand the issues that might confront uh, families with less resources? To a degree, that is part of the problem. Now, I studied teachers who were white as well as black. And one of the things that I thought was really compelling was that each of those educators expressed an interest in making sure that their classroom was an equitable space. But what I actually found was when they called on students, they were even-handed, but the feedback that students received varied greatly by race. So, for example... One of the things that I talk about in the book is the notion of a sliding standard. And I call it a sliding standard because it speaks to the idea that teachers, in in an attempt to tend to diversity and to not appear as if they are biased, often can alter the standard that students receive. So one of the teachers in my study, Mr. Marks, explained that he had been teaching in the district for about 20 years, and he said, LaRue, you know, when I first came to the district and I had an African-American student, and he would use a sentence that had a dangling preposition on the end, he would say, well, you know where the door's at? It's right behind that dangling preposition. And he said over time, he realized that his students, particularly his African-American students, were pretty perceptive. And he did not want to appear as if he would be disrespectful in his comments, so he said he would leave those type of comments away. But he went beyond not simply making jokes about where a preposition was. Now, he stressed to me in multiple conversations that he knew that his students would have to speak what he called standard middle English, but he feared that his students would think that by correcting their English, he was devaluing them. And if he devalued the English they spoke the students would perceive that he devalued his parents. And so for Mr. Marks, his goal was to stay away from being perceived as biased. But what this ultimately meant was that black students got less critical feedback on the work that they did. In your book, you dedicate an entire chapter to parental engagement in their children's education. From what you saw, how did parents' interactions with the school teachers and and the administrators differ based on race? Parent interactions are probably one of the most critical things around schooling and opportunity. But what I found is that there were ways in which certain sets of parents were given greater levity and the ability to customize where other parents were given less so. In two of the schools that I studied, each year a family had an opportunity to select the classroom or to make a recommendation around which classroom they wanted their child to be in. Now, the form that was administered from the district explicitly said that parents could not select a teacher. 
Instead, what they had to fill out were sets of characteristics or sets of needs that their students had that would be important in their classroom placement. When I spoke to the principals, one of the things that we found was that consistently, affluent white parents skipped over the rules that said you cannot select a teacher and explicitly wrote in the teacher that they wanted. What often happened were that local school buildings were under pressure from the district to make sure that the parents that came from more affluent backgrounds were made happy. So one example of this is in a classroom that I studied. The next fifth grade teacher was known as Miss Baker. And Miss Baker was seen as a teacher who was not desired. In fact, there was a rumor that spread around that Miss Baker had been chronically absent from school, that she didn't care very much about her students. There was a groundswell or there were a groundswell of parents who came together to suggest that they did not want their child in Miss Baker's school. Now, this is an excellent example of parental organizing. They went through the PTA, they developed a petition and brought the petition to the principal and said, we don't want our child in Miss Baker's classroom. But the catch to this organizing is that it actually ended up being based on geography as well as race. Even within the suburbs, the housing stock is often segregated. Black families live separate from white families. Families who are lower income very, live very distant from those who are affluent. And so when these parents started to organize this petition, they circulated it within their subdivision. They circulated it at hockey games. They circulated it at very specific functions. When the petition was gone through, it turns out that there was only one black family listed on the whole petition. The petition had about 50 families. When I came to the principal to ask about the petition, what she told me is that many of the affluent white parents treat the public school as if it's a private school. They demand what they want, and then they force the school to give it to them. Well, this speaks to another issue that you touch on in depth, which is essentially the resources that a family has to invest both in their kids, time resources, money resources, and in this case, a sense of political entitlement, really, a difference between the white families and the families of color. Can you talk a bit more about how there's a resource gap between uh, affluent families and less affluent families? Absolutely. So when we think about resources, we often simply think about finances. And while finances do matter, the bigger gap that existed in Rolling Acres and in many suburban school systems are the differences in responses between schools as institutions and families. While I was studying the district, one of the things that happened was there have been multiple proposals to reduce the achievement gap, to concentrate resources on black families and on poor families. And a number of white families filed a counterclaim to the Department of Civil Rights suggesting if you target these families who have lower income, who come from racial diverse backgrounds, then you will be disadvantaging my child. The result of this challenge was ultimately the programs that were meant to target the students in most need, the students who were behind because of a gap, the resources ended up going to all students and typically got gobbled up by affluent families. This resource gap extends to extracurricular activities and other kinds of educational enrichment programs as well, does it not? One of the things that I found were that extracurriculars are tied to financial needs. Those type of experiences can also be very meaningful for organizing life. So I talk about a young white male student who was part of a travel hockey program. And when I asked him, what are the things that contribute to how well you do at school? And he mentioned his hockey team. He said for the travel hockey team, each student had to maintain a certain GPA. 
And while this is something that's common among collegiate athletics, it's not really something that's common among fourth graders. But at the age of 10, he had already received instructions, if you want to play this elite sport, you also have to be performing at an academically sufficient level. I think that's an important socialization element that was not always present for all families. On the other end, for more low-income families or lower-income families in the suburbs, the cost of living in a suburban district was high. The cost of owning a home, the cost of renting a home, the cost of owning a vehicle. So that meant there were fewer resources that could be dedicated to providing extracurricular activities. So I compared the, the student I just described, Danny, to another little boy who chose the name LeBron. And LeBron, on the other end, while his family owned the home, they felt like what it cost to survive in Rolling Acres was very high. So LeBron wasn't involved in extracurricular activities. Instead, he spent the bulk of his time hanging out in his neighborhood, shooting on a basketball hoop at the end of a cul-de-sac. So without having a specialized experience, an adult-focused experience that tied academics to sports, LeBron didn't see the necessity of achieving highly or well to play basketball. So I think there are ways in which opportunities in suburban spaces have to be accessible to all families. I suspect your findings were might have been a bit of a revelation to the more affluent families in Rolling Acres, and I'd like to know what they thought of it. But were there surprises for the families of color and those with fewer resources? Absolutely. For both affluent and lower income families, there were surprises. First, I think the biggest gap that actually existed in Rolling Acres, it wasn't the black-white test score gap, it wasn't the suspension gap, but the biggest gap was the gap between those who understood how they contributed to inequality and those who did not. For most affluent parents, the idea of customizing school, demanding from school and getting what they want was something that they thought all parents had access to. When I shared with them how the families of their classmates were unable to receive the same results, they literally were puzzled. They were like, well, I never knew. On the other end of the spectrum, for lower income families, both black and white, they realized that much of the discussion around educational inequality centered on the black and white gap, but there wasn't a lot of discussion of socioeconomic status and class. Both poor black families and poor white families in the suburbs felt that their voices and their concerns were missed. So if there was a newspaper article on the black-white achievement gap, they would talk to affluent white families, middle-class white families, middle-class black families, but poor families would be left out. You close your book by focusing on suburban school practices that you see as being more equitable, more equal, more effective. What do those look like? I think more equitable practices start with courageous conversations, conversations about the ways in which race and class and even gender continue to structure our everyday life. The next thing more equitable practices can look like is effective training of teachers, making sure teachers understand that bias is nuanced and complex. The thing that was most telling about Rolling Acres and many suburban districts is for such a long time, they had educated affluent families, they had educated white families, and they were used to homogenous populations. As Rolling Acres diversifies and as most suburbs diversify, they have to pay particular attention to how different families experience the school system and what must be done to actually make sure it's equitable for all. Dr. LaRue Lewis-McCoy is a professor of sociology at the City University of New York and author of the book, Inequality in the Promised Land, Race, Resources, and Suburban Schooling. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. You can find a link to Lewis-McCoy's book at our website, apmreports.org. 
While you're there, you can listen to our archive of more than 100 documentary projects. We'd also love to hear what you think about Educate. You can leave us a review on iTunes or let us know at apmreports.org. We are on Facebook, and you can also tweet us at Educate Podcast, one word. Support for APM Reports comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Spencer Foundation, and Lumina Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM. Thank you.